0: This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. I'm Paul Anthony Nelson and in the cave tonight I'm joined by the fabulous Cerise Howard. Hello. Hello, said fabulously. <laughs> and the awesome Sally Christie. Hello.
1: Hello. Good to have you back again, Paul. It's exciting that you're here.
0: Well, oh, thank you so much. Lovely to be here. Uh, on tonight's show, we'll take a walk through the mind and art of Vincent van Gogh. I, I know I'm probably going to get letters about the way I'm pronouncing his name. That's not
2: <laughs> unusual for people anchoring this show, Paul. It's, uh, it's a, a, a great It's a tradition. tradition. <laughs>
0: Uh, it's vincent van Gogh, as personified by willem defoe in at eternity's gate and we'll spend some quality time with the world's most popular conceptual video artwork in the clock but first let's take a trip back to 1970s harlem with if beale street could talk So in the new film from Barry Jenkins, the Oscar winning director of Moonlight, If Beale Street Could Talk is the story of Tish a young African American woman who's just discovered she's pregnant to her boyfriend Fonny, who she's known all her life Tish's family received this news warmly, but to say Fonny's family are less than thrilled with this development is an understatement. After Tish is harassed by a man in a grocery store, Fonny throws the man out only to get on the wrong side of a cop, who is soon instrumental in Fonny being arrested on a Charge. As Tish faces bringing up her child alone, her family and Fonny's father team together to try and clear Fonny's name, coming up against police corruption, systemic racism and an elusive victim. Cerise, did Beale Street speak to you? And if you can converse with an inanimate bitumen, what drugs are you taking and may I try some?
2: um that's a very multi-barreled question and some of it rather <laughs> abstract and a little a little bit of uh, beyond my uh, powers to answer adequately <laughs> so <laughs> uh the film did it did it do it for me was the gist of, of yeah was, did was it I, speak to you did it speak to me it did speak to me it spoke to me in colors uh and movement and frontal compositions and and uh, flashes back and forth from one story line uh, development to another. Uh, it was, it's, it's it's a very complex film presented quite straightforwardly, which mm. is admirable. And it's also a very beautiful one, um, a very melodramatic one. There's a lot of drama accompanied by strings. Oh, there are a lot of strings on this <laughs> soundtrack to this film. But I didn't find that cloying or... Irritating as overuse a la John Williams of mm-hmm. strings can be. I mean, if anyone yeah, really goes to town with, with string sections and drives the likes of me berserk, it is the John Williams' of this world. <laughs> but this, this film, it, 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 whilst, whilst being an adaptation of a James Baldwin story and very much located in a, a black American experience, uh, I was reminded most of all of some very white films. Uh, the, the melodramas of Douglas Sirk uh, later a bit more multicultural as they were interpreted via, through the lens of the German enfant terrible Rainer Werner Fassbinder uh, I, I saw a lot of uh, a lineage joining those directors to Barry Jenkins here in in many ways not, not least the, the, the way that the drama played out in, in this film but also just in the compositions and the beautiful colours this film was unnecessarily beautiful and I respect that a lot the, uh, the fashions, the, um, the wallpaper, the, just the furnishings, everything in this was just that little bit more beautiful than it needed to be. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And uh, w- without it being too OTT as well. And Todd Haynes is, is also plying this sort of area. He's someone else who's pastiched the Cirque Fassbinder lineage. I think Jenkins is going for something a little different here to what he did in Moonlight, which wowed everybody on the planet a couple of years ago. This, this doesn't feel like as sensational a film, as revelatory a film, but it's a pretty damn good one and it's really pretty.
1: I um, was reading that Barry Jenkins wrote the script for Moonlight and for Beale Street at the same time, but he didn't have the rights to Beale Street. So he, you know... Moonlight came first. I thought I saw this last night, and I just thought it was absolutely beautiful. Like such a beautiful film. Um, what you were just saying, Cerise, that everything was just that bit more beautiful than it needed to be. Particularly the the clothes were just. I love them. It was the. It was so soft and. It, it did remind me of Moonlight in that way, that it, it felt very gentle for a film that had some very brutal things happening in it. And I think that Jenkins is a real master at that. There was um, one particular scene in, this, in Beale Street that I just thought was incredible was the scene where um, Fonny, that's his name, mm-hmm. isn't it? Fonny. And um, his friend Daniel uh, are having a beer together. And, you know, his friend has just returned from jail and they're just talking. And it was this kind of welcoming back of his friend and, you know, Tish coming in and out of the kitchen, sharing of food. It was just, yeah, really an incredible film. And, yeah, like Cerise was saying, much more beautiful in spots than it needed to be. And that didn't feel like, you know, it was taking the piss or anything like that. Mm. It was just
0: gorgeous. And I think a filmmaker he takes his cues from as well is Wong Kar Wai. Um, he's name oh, yeah. Wong Kar Wai. is a massive influence. You can tell that kind of sensual way he regards skin and longing looks and it's in that, that tradition as well. It called to mind things like In the Mood for Love yeah. and Happy Together. Um, I have to say, though, I completely agree about the style and, and the fashions and the setting. I was a little, I was left a little cold by this film. I, I see. This is the thing. I loved Moonlight, and Moonlight had the same issue. But, but with Moonlight, the central three characters you had their revolution over mm-hmm. age. But in Moonlight, you had these incredibly interesting supporting characters. And I think in this case, the lead characters aren't as interesting as Chiron slash Black was in Moonlight. In fact, I kind of found them overly angelic. I found them to be ciphers, and so. They, there's lots of time devoted to their longing looks at each other, and I was just taken right out of it. Um, whereas all the supporting characters, uh, we got terrific Regina King playing yeah, she was amazing, it? Tish's mother. You know, flying to Puerto Rico to find the uh, alleged victim of of, of Fonny's assault. Um, and the uh, I love the two fathers, uh, Tish's father and Fonny's father, gathering in a bar trying to work out how they are going to get income to fund Fonny's defense. And, like, all of this stuff, there's an incredible family, family argument early in the film. That was yeah.
1: so amazing, that scene, wasn't it? <laughs> Excellent. The
2: best scene in the movie. It is. It is absolutely yeah. the standout scene. Um, but it's even even when you're really enjoying all this shade being thrown furiously in <laughs> yeah. that meeting of the two families, it's undercut by one nasty little incident yeah. in the thick of it. And that's, that's uh, there's a, a it somehow handles that tonal shift really well and then positions it. Actually, right in the middle of more sass, more sass flies after that, too. Yes. But that could have gone horribly wrong. <laughs> from, uh, and from
0: a character I was liking as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. all of a sudden it's like, whoa. Okay. And, and as you say, he totally folds that back in really, really nicely. But yeah, I just couldn't get as invested as I wanted to get. It just felt they, as characters, felt so much more generic than the characters around them to me. And they're. And, and even the dialogue seemed to be spoken in platitudes. I don't know who uh, – I mean, I know and, – and a lot of it is probably taken from James Baldwin's I, novel. I which think
1: a lot sure that mentioned. they did try to stay pretty true to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I found it really interesting that this is the first ever film adaptation of James Baldwin novel. Wow. Yeah. I so, yeah, I, did, I found that quite interesting. Yeah, I, I know that yeah, Barry Jenkins said that he. a lot of the dialogue was straight from the book
0: yeah so as a consequence i just didn't connect with this as much as i did with moonlight like moonlight just broke my heart um whereas this i I, yeah it just left me very cold and but yeah uh, and exquisite to look at um actually that scene you mentioned before sally between his old friend his old friend is played by um brian tyree henry who viewers of tv's atlanta um will know as Paperboy and he's one of my favourite actors going around at the moment. He's fantastic. But yeah, I don't know. I just I, I really, really wanted to love this and and just couldn't.
2: I I feel a little bit of that as well. It didn't uh, I've had a couple of days to reflect on the film and haven't actually found myself reflecting on it terribly often, mm. which speaks to what you're describing as well. I think it didn't have that emotional clout. The, the one moment that I really felt was that, that moment of violence within a, a, a scene that otherwise was joyous to behold because everyone was tearing that scene up. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, so, yeah, this doesn't... This, uh, I don't think this is a film to linger in the memory to the extent that Moonlight will, but that it was so out of the box as well. None of us... Uh, I mean, Barry Jenkins was not a name that anyone knew anything of. Now he has baggage to bring to a new film. Oh, it's yes. oh, the Moonlight Guy. <laughs> we expect great yeah. things yeah, always. But this is still lovely. Mm, beautiful. <laughs> yeah, solid. And also,
0: can we just say for 70s genre film nuts? As the cop, the bent, you know, the kind of the racist cop in the movie, yes. did they try and get the most Joe Spinell looking guy on the planet?
1: <laughs> he did look like Joe Spinell.
0: <laughs> well, who, who was that actually? Dave Franco.
1: I think it was. I think, I think Dave yeah. was. Franco
0: was the uh, the young Jewish guy who rented the. Loft oh, it was. To oh the, Yeah. Okay. Who just like to see okay, couples in so love. So, who
2: was our scuzzy cop in this? Because he was. He was. Fabulously ratty and yeah. nasty. I, I'm just going to call him Joe Spinell Jr. Yeah, <laughs> that's <laughs> sure maniac Jr. <junior. laughs> we'll, look him up yet in the in the break. Because <laughs> I'm curious. Because yeah, he, he sort of stole the show. Because he was the one person painted as an outright villain, and uh, yeah, he brought it. Yeah, yeah. he did.
0: Great. Um, if uh, If Bill Street Could Talk is now screening at all good independent cinemas. <laughs>
1: You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RR in Melbourne, Australia.
0: The second film we'll be looking at today is At Eternity's Gate. And this is from artist-turned-filmmaker Julian Schnabel, who gave us Basquiat, Before Night Falls and The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. And this is his very personal interpretation of the last years of the life of Vincent Van Gogh. We meet Vincent, played by Willem Dafoe, in Paris, where his dissatisfaction with the, with the city and its insular artistic community bonds him with fellow artist Paul Gauguin, played by Oscar Isaac, uh, who suggests that Van Gogh take himself to the south of France. Uh, supported by his loving brother Theo, Vincent relocates to the uh, provincial town of Al, um where he's constantly overwhelmed by nature, wanting to capture it in his paintings to preserve its beauty and make others feel alive. Um, but Vincent's grip on sanity is loosening. He's having blackouts, he's finding himself isolated from the town around him, and finding himself confined to psychiatric facilities, for incidents he can't recall. As he struggles through poverty, social disconnection, mental illness, and a compulsive need to paint, Vincent begins to feel very much like a man out of time. Sally, did you find this a Willem Dafoe or a Willem de Friend?
1: <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Took me a second. I found a, a Willem de in the middle somewhere.
0: <laughs> <laughs> a Willem de me.
1: Um There. I, I really like that kind of trend that's happening with biopics at the moment, where we're not getting that whole cradle to the grave story, and hmm. we're getting, a, you know, snapshot that was uh, what was the was the Jackie one called just Jackie Jackie yeah. Jackie and um it was Pas- like a horror movie <laughs> yeah the Pasolini one that also starred Willem Dafoe As, uh, so did I. I thought that was incredible um he was fantastic in this film and he's such a chameleon like how can you go from being such a convincing Pasolini to such a convincing Van Gogh I don't know but um he, he, was, he looks
0: like Van Gogh I know like, it's
1: and crazy. But then he looked like Pasolini in Pasolini Actually,
0: you, brief sidebar You want to talk about outfits Okay. Pasolini's wardrobe in that film I wanted all of it Yeah, it was great I, Can I just say
1: Yeah, I, I, it, he was excellent <laughs> in that But yeah, I, I, do, I do like this trend that's happening We see it again here Where um, we're getting this little snapshot So we're not getting this entire picture um, Defoe definitely was the standout for me in this film yeah. It was. There were some parts of it that... Well, there was a lot of it that was incredibly beautiful. Uh, a lot of it, I thought, was really clever with the colour palette, that it looked like Van Gogh's paintings, that, you know, there were colours that we know from Starry Night and all these incredible things. Uh, I also liked the, the way that there were some really... Um, I guess iconic things that happened to him that we all expect like the cutting off of the ear. I like the way that that was handled. Mm. I thought that was very very a very clever device, but ultimately, I did feel a little underwhelmed from this to
2: be honest. Did you do it for me that much?
0: Yes, cerise, how did you find
2: I too was quite underwhelmed. Story. I think the this this film came up against a problem quite common to films uh, trying to somehow convey genius and somebody's battles with it when they suspect they might be possessed of it. There's an awful lot of extremely banal dialogue here about his, uh, as he tries to come to terms with what it is he's trying to accomplish. And the the exchange between him and Gauguin are are pretty trite, really. It's -hmm. it's not sparkling dialogue. It's not uh, champagne (laughs) dialogue. It's, It's really pretty ordinary, so I didn't get any real chemistry between them Gauguin was clearly a mentor figure for Van Gogh and yet I I really don't see why he'd even have looked up to him Uh, as he was played by Oscar Isaac I I saw a perfectly uncharismatic painter who actually his advice was not that great, though I did love the, the first moment where Van Gogh acts upon his advice and goes to the south of France and clearly goes there in the middle of winter and we see a, a very desolate scene, a fish-eyed look at a tall spindly sunflower that's just barely clinging on to life. Now, that was a nice moment and there are a few nice moments in this, but a lot of the attempts for me to uh, to really convey Van Gogh's inner state and especially his, uh, his vision, literally his vision, it, it didn't... You now, there's some really... Really, pretty ordinary attempts to 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 show what was going on in his head and what he was seeing. That's just this weird filter applied on the bottom half of the screen. Oh. I mean,
0: <laughs> that was Don't.
2: that was dismal. <laughs> and there were, there were one or two. Uh, the other example that was annoying me at the time is is faded from memory already. I only saw was this it, on Saturday. Was
1: it the repetition of the dialogue? Oh my that, god, that really. Oh, gave that, me that t- was a bit annoying. Shame. Yeah, there,
2: yeah, yeah. There, there was some devices here that that were just pretty sort of uh, undergraduate student stuff really <laughs> right you know I, I th- exactly uh, that like that scene where he's lying in the dirt
0: pouring dirt over himself and looking up to the air it's like I'm pretty sure I've seen this in a VCA film
2: yeah. <laughs> and look I've seen some obviously some some great student films so that did sound a bit disparaging but this, this really was not. An insightful, I mean, I, I expect mm. from an artist making a film about an artist something that speaks to mm. an artist's life and vision and experience and ambition. And Julian Schnabel has made a film that has affected me greatly. And that was The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, which destroyed me and did give me a sense of what somebody was actually experiencing when someone was uh, experiencing something that very few of us, I hope, ever. Mm get to experience I was locked in syndrome in that extraordinary film I found absolutely harrowing I really had that experience conveyed to me but here I've I just actually spent some of the time watching the film scoffing going oh come on that's not <laughs> what genius is if that's what genius is we're all geniuses in that audience because I, I felt this was just a banal
1: oh yeah it was I, I really enjoyed Basquiat as well wouldn't you know I think that was his first feature yeah. and um I did have higher hopes for this because I thought Basquiat was great fun.
0: Yeah, I, I'm with you. Like, the cinematography, the shaky cam gave me syndrome, like, just following everybody. It's like, was anybody holding this thing or were we just throwing it to each other? While it seemed like the camera ops were literally tossing the camera from side to side. Um, the score was like nails down a blackboard. It was just this <laughs> ting, ting console that just gave me anxiety um yeah the filter at the bottom of the screen was yeah uh, it's th- terrible precious and at best terrible at worst it and that's the thing and and, you know, and
2: someone like oscar isaac really has to try to be uncharismatic yeah <laughs> yeah I, w- I was very surprised by that actually just uh but then the dialogue there's yeah. much to work with they no. were really speaking and and trite um uh oh, it's just very plain um undecorated dialogue it was just uh, expository and barely any anything beyond that and and the circumstances around van gogh's van gogh's death uh
0: i don't know how much of it's based in whatever fact or recollection but I don't know, two cast members of Young Guns seemed to be involved. Like it was very strange, like in terms of its depiction. That's I mean I don't right. I don't yes. wanna be you know, I don't wanna give spoilers, but yeah. it just made me think of Emilio Estevez and, and Lou Domin Phillips. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but there were a couple of nice cameos. Mads Mickelson made a yes, oh, he did. Uh,
1: yeah that was uh, great. Yeah. that was very that was I think my favorite bit of the movie yeah, to be
2: honest. I, but how much
0: did he yeah. remind you of Dr. Lecter? Yeah, no, I mean I was like thinking, it was... is
1: he going to eat his other ear off now? <laughs> <It's>
0: like, like, <laughs> like I don't know if I want. Hannibal Lecter to be my priest Slash art critic uh. I wouldn't mind that I'm okay with that I think
2: yeah, He could end up as dinner but that's fine It's nice while it's happening well, if It wasn't Anthony Hopkins Do you really see that bigger resemblance between the two Or is it more the vibe <laughs> of the thing with Mads I see Christopher Walken when I see I see a yeah. Nordic Walken mm. with Mads Mikkelsen no, I was always. thinking Brian Cox So you know yeah. <laughs> it's got Lots of Lecters all it's not say Walken
0: doesn't bring the sinister you a, can you imagine a walk in Doctor Lecter?
2: Yes, um, be good. Having fava beans <laughs> with a <an> nice Chianti. <laughs> That's not bad. <laughs> That's not bad. Can you do a walk, Christopher walking, So no, I'm not even going to. I'm okay. not even going to try. I'll just embarrass myself. <laughs> <laughs> And Matteo Amalric also, another oh, nice I little him. guy. I, I like it, And he was, I mean, he was so great in Diving Bell and the Butterfly. I do like it when directors work with actors across a body of work and I hope that continues. I like charting those little relationships. Yeah. Um, and I like Matteo Amalric as, as a rule, and he, he looked particularly silly in this film. <laughs> and, but he managed nonetheless to bring some degree of gravitas to his role. And, I mean, Defoe did as well. I mean, Defoe, mm. was, he's never going to totally phone it in but he's still encumbered with some pretty dire yeah. words. To- he
1: tried his best.
0: He, he
2: did. He really throws himself yeah. at this. And not in
0: an overacting gosh type mm. way. Like, he's, he's actually really great. And, I mean, Oscar great
2: i'm not sure like was he nominated for this he was really yeah no 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 seriously it, i i have I'm an ongoing really file
0: of why the hell did first reformed get ignored <laughs> by the oscars this year yeah. grievances and this I'm is with you on that added one. to the list because mm. ethan hawke's performance and that film just but yeah uh yeah at eternity's gate uh yeah it's it's very and and that's the thing because it does try to be different and does try to be impressionistic and get in his head and tries to be a different biopic but in the end it's just yeah it's it's a lot of divergent styles crashing into one another and and not forming a cohesive whole and building it around as you say a trite script and you know one great performance at the center of it does not a film make
2: no. Sadly. Curiously, Defoe provides a little voiceover in this and he provides a whole lot of voiceover in a film we're going to talk about next week as well, Vox Lux. And I've seen oh. them within days of each other and that was a bit weird. <laughs> just that, that weird um, bleed from one film experience into another. just Because he, he delivers that voiceover in much the same way whether he's Van Gogh or just the narrator of Vox Lux. It's a bit and odd. Just as long as the Vox Lux, uh, Vox Lux narration doesn't
0: repeat over and over <laughs> no. and over again.
2: <laughs> No, no, no <laughs> t- not annoying,
0: so much. Annoy the living crap out of me.
2: Um, so,
0: if you're still interested after all that, at Eternity's Gate, is screening now at all good independent cinemas. Three. Triple. Ah! Fresh from a season in Britain's Tate Modern, the world's most popular conceptual video art piece of all time, It makes its long-awaited Melbourne debut after visiting Sydney's Museum of Contemporary Art in 2013. We had to wait five years for this.
2: It's crazy. Sydney had it seven years ago or so, I think. Yeah. MCA. uh,
0: it's crazy, yeah. Uh, 2013, according to my, uh, my Googling. Um, crafted in 2010 by video artist Christian Marclay and a team of intrepid editors, to say the least, The Clock is a 24-hour installation created from over 12,000 clips, sourced from over 1,200 films. Um and the clips of clocks, watches and other references to time from film and television are uh, masterfully edited together and synced perfectly to the time in the real world. So if somebody says it's, you know, James Woods from Once Upon a Time in America opens his pocket watch and says it's 10.25pm and then you look at your watch, it is indeed 10.25pm. It's kind of cool. Um, so it synced perfectly to the time in the real world and... Um, I'm just blown away that they've managed to find the vast majority of the 1,440 minutes of the day represented on TV and film somewhere and it's all to create one mesmerising collage. Cerise, was your time in the clock a time well spent journeying through cinema history or a visual representation of the minutes you'd never get back? Uh, Yes.
2: (laughs) Uh, I loved being there. Of course, you cannot help but be acutely aware of the passage of time while you're in there because you're reminded of the Actual time of day at uh, extremely regular intervals. I mean, it's not rhythmic exactly. Uh, sometimes there, there could be quite a long clip or a long montage before someone actually explicitly uh, shows you the time on their on one timepiece or another. Or sometimes it's it's a little subtler. There's a, a clock in the back of shot somewhere. It might start out out of focus and finally come into focus. Uh, it could be a digital timepiece. Uh, this spans the the ages. And there are some extremely iconic scenes from film history involving clocks in, in the narrative universe, not not just as backdrops or as something someone's checking in the interest of the generation of suspense. Someone quickly checks their watch because they know that they only have, oh, I don't know, half a minute until someone's going to get shot in a, another scene somewhere else. And there, there's so much joy as a cinephile to be had i i gave four hours of my time effortlessly on saturday from 10 till 2 enjoying all of the threads that get pieced together in, in, I mean, some people four hours might sound like a long sitting, but that's only one-sixth of this. (laughs) But even in that time, I could take great delight and say scenes from The Breakfast Club that would have been separated by a cut and been instantaneous going from one to the next or close to are here separated by real time (laughs) so that they actually references the time within the narrative of that film and suddenly we rejoin the the, the kids in detention and uh, that that's just so much fun. I I loved um, my time. It was only four hours so far. I, I do mean to go in and do one of these overnighters yet. I really want to especially be there around the time, uh, sort of 6am onwards, right? My imagination suggests that there'll be an awful lot of people being... Woken up rudely by alarm clocks and waking up into post-apocalyptic <laughs> environments and freaking out. Uh, but look, uh, it's, you know it's not all fun and games. Uh, I, uh, last week it was my great privilege to be the bringer of bad new tidings on um, uh, the, the new Plato's Cave for 2019, mentioning his three or four people to have recently passed. One of the things the clock first reminded me of was another recent passing of a great, because I kept seeing Bruno Gantz materialise between the hours of 10 and 2 and Wings of Desire. And he passed away just in the last couple of days and he'd passed just before I saw this. And, so, and of course, he played an angel, a sort of figure beyond the realm of of life and death um, within that film. And this is exactly the sort of thing, seeing this, might encourage, uh, find, have, find people thinking of just around issues of mortality, theirs, mm-hmm. but especially film, this most haunted of mediums where people's images are preserved at the moment that the image was taken. It's an indexical image to time and place, uh, even if the place is artificial. But we're forever going to see the same image of these people. And we're Bruno Gans, long live. Wings of Desire recently digitally restored, Mm. so we should have that film for one hopes eternity. Hopefully. this is the age of the supercut, and Bruno Gans is the... um, I I think a a little factoid I saw in the last day or so was that he appears in the piece of footage from a major motion picture most shared in all time on the internet. Of course. Which is, of course, his uh, Hitler in the Bunker... Rage <laughs> yes. from downfall. Everyone knows, been, yeah, yes. even if they've never seen the original <laughs> film, <laughs> they've, seen, that, they've yeah. seen Hitler losing his shit over something <laughs> in the subtitles, where people have taken certain liberties. And it, it's just endlessly generative that scene. And so, uh, and we are in the age of the supercut. All these great films in recent times, powerful films like uh, "They Shall Not Grow Old," the recent Peter Jackson mm-hmm. World War One found footage extravaganza. Or closer to the spirit of the clock, uh, Guy Madden's genius uh, vertigo tribute, The Green Fog, which was my highlight from MIF last year and made me so impossibly happy, especially all the fun it had with Chuck Norris's image. <laughs> Um, I'm dying and it. of course, Terra Nullius locally as well. <laughs> oh, and, and the Reckoning, which was one of my my highlights of 2018. Yeah,
1: one of mine too. I yeah. loved it.
2: So this is the age of the supercut, but none is ever going to be more super than the <laughs> clock. I mean, it's 24 hours long.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I have. We have to say too, this is the clock is screening at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image, and is um, basically it's open from 10 till 5 most days, but except for Thursdays when you can watch the 24 hour version.
1: I thought um, the clock was just such an amazing achievement. It really, really was. Um, Completely hypnotic, like completely hypnotic. I went in there, I saw only two hours. I Mm -hmm. was hoping to see more. What were your hours? Um, Four to six. Four to six. Oh, no, no, three to five, sorry. Three to five on a Sunday. Um, I should have known. (laughs) The time was in front of me constantly. (laughs) (laughs) I'm definitely going back to see more. But weirdly, you do lose track of time in You know, there. I had this thought before I went in there because I was meeting somebody at 5.15 and I thought, oh, how am I going to know what time it is? Because I don't want to be that jerk that gets my phone out and I was like, oh, you idiot, it's constant you got to know what time it is every minute that you're in there. Um, but, yeah, this was an absolutely remarkable achievement. I love that I got to see Step Brothers and... Um, and blow out just in the same sequence two of my all-time favorites that i never thought would combine did so that was really exciting for me i became really interested in the process that they um that he went through to you know put this together and how he worked with teams of people and how um this is christian mcclay and how he got everything sort of together in a spreadsheet based on hours and then tried to construct a narrative within that hour, uh, which I found really impressive because the one thing that I was super impressed with this was the editing and the sound design. I kind of expected it not to be as smooth and as beautiful as it was, that it all kind of bled into each other and that there was stories happening it wasn't just oh he's a clock he's a clock he's a clock it was beautiful yeah. the,
0: the segues were incredible like mm. sometimes they'd be thematic sometimes they'd just be sort of time linking sometimes it'd be you know two people getting out of bed sometimes and sometimes they cut between you know they like you said sorry like they come back to the same film at various times as you know the, the real-time shenanigans would sort of um, pan out and the fact that Whenever you went, because I went between eight forty, no, it was uh, no eight forty p.m. and twelve forty a.m. and and I was like you, uh, my partner and I went in and we were thinking we're going to be in here for two hours tops, two hours we'll go we'll see it all, and the first hour felt like half an hour.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's so hypnotic. It's absolutely incredible just how beautiful and smooth it goes yeah
0: and this and then the two hours felt like 45 minutes and it was only after three hours we we're like all right we're gonna go at midnight okay midnight we'll go and then midnight came it's like we'll stay for a little longer and <laughs> eventually got to 12 and it's like all right now we're starting to get sleepy only because of the time of night that it was yeah it's and i think there's there's partly a ticking, you know, I think part of it is the editing, the fluidity with which everything comes together, but also there's I think the constant presence of the time gives it a ticking clock, sort of momentum mm-hmm. like you kind of like You know what's happening now? What's happening there? And yeah, it's it's super um, interesting in terms of uh, what you're seeing at different times.
1: What kind of things were happening at? um, Well, when you were there till midnight. Yeah, well, what was the narrative that was going on there?
0: There were lots of people having having dinners. Mm -hmm. Um, There were there was a lot of espionage. Okay. A lot of espionage at night. <laughs> at know? all times of day, actually, throughout this, <laughs> yeah. I believe, yeah. <laughs> so much espionage. Yeah. The thing that got me, I mean, almost to the point where I thought, is her name above the title? There is so much Joan Crawford.
2: <laughs> yes. Between 12.40 and 8.40. Uh, oh, and earlier in the morning, Faye Dunaway as Joan oh. Crawford. Oh. Yeah. oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. That's a yeah. nice inverse. Awkward breakfast scene. Yeah. <laughs> from mummy dearest so much
0: yeah um and lots of um yeah yeah, lots of people going to shows lots of people having kind of you know family dramas lots of grandfather clock action Uh as well big ben lots of big ben big ben big ben blew up at midnight Yeah, i
1: thought big ben would be the big midnight number
0: what's the viva vendetta um explosion um which hits at midnight which is which is really really nice so we just talked about the four hours that I was there between eight forty and and twelve forty. Sally, what was what was going on between three and five?
1: Lots of people winding up work, <laughs> really. Like yes. that's that that was kind of the main sort of pattern of people finishing their day, going home. That was, yeah, the main kind of thing that. I saw happening. I
0: love it's always big mood, like Mm. whatever you're going through at the time. Yeah. It's like...
1: So, yeah, it really just was... I, I knew that it would be something that was truly special, but it well and truly exceeded my expectations. Yeah. I'm super keen to go and do... The
0: overnight, I wanted to try and get at least half of it done. I yeah. wanted to try and get 12 hours. I don't know if that's going to happen, but I think we're going to go for at least another four-hour yeah. dip. because
1: it feels like also now that it's going to be a bit of an endurance test, that I'm going to be like, yes, I can do this. I do know a couple of people that have done the 24 mm-hmm. hours. Don't know that I could do it. <laughs> that's a pretty good, good achievement.
0: Yeah, I saw two of them doing it. And, um, yeah, braver souls than I. Uh-huh. Um, what about you, Cerise? What was happening during your uh, period?
2: Well, there was some breakfasting. There were occasionally people waking up late and freaking out. <laughs> um, so there were alarms going off time to time. There was quite a lot of espionage. There were chase sequences. There was a lot of Big Ben. Um, uh, there was always a ratcheting sense of anxiety as we approached the hour. Yes, yes. 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 And yep, I, think I suspect mm. that's probably going to be happening at yeah. any time of day. I do love and that. to see how they... The, yeah, and then actually on the hour... That minute, that first minute when it is exactly the hour, uh, is quite stressful. (laughs) Because there's a lot of people who are just, who are within the film's narratives, within these clips, acknowledging the fact it is now the hour and something is going to go down or is going down. This is the moment they've been waiting for in their (laughs) little narrative (laughs) universes. Yeah. So a lot of excitement and then i would find myself going all right i'm just gonna uh, another 15 minutes or so and they go no i need to know how they see in the next hour what happens at <laughs> midday what happens at 1 p.m
1: well because I, I was there till 5 p.m on a sunday when it you know was closing for the day and it was really bizarre it was such a strange anticlimactic thing where it's like okay done out I think I was Carl, who panels the show, was saying a similar thing and that they even perhaps cut it off two minutes before 5 o'clock for him so he didn't even get to see the 5pm mark.
2: Ooh. Yeah, you, you want to see the hour. Yes. Yeah, um, yeah.
1: yeah I, God, I, I would feel so ripped off if I didn't get to see that five p. The
2: half hours were quite stressful often as well. Things often happen at those particular niche divisions of the 60 minutes that makes up an hour. So that's quite often when something stressful was about to it's happen. It's an emotional rollercoaster. Yeah. <laughs> I also noticed in the, the section I watched, it was uh, regular recourse to clips from a, a film that played... Prided itself on being in a, a real-time narrative... ...which was a pretty naff film, actually... ...the Johnny Depp thriller, Nick of Time. Oh, John Badham yeah, represent. yeah. 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 I and mean, it's a pretty crap film... Yeah. ...but uh, there was a little bit of a vogue there for a while... ...of films that play out in real-time. Yeah. Uh, and this one reminded... Uh, ...seeing this at intervals within the period of the clock... ...it still reminded <laughs> me that actually wasn't a great film. But uh, there are little snippets of Run, Dollar Run. There are yes. quite, a, quite a lot of snippets of films... ...where there are characters battling time... Mm. And sometimes the, the clip mightn't show you a clock, it mightn't show you a timepiece of any sort, but someone isn't even speaking of the time, but they're just referencing time in the abstract. Yeah. Even though within the film's narrative universe, you know that it is that particular time corresponding to the real time, mm-hmm. they're just not referencing it explicitly, and then it goes off to another clip. And I got to have the, that joyous little moment where one of the great lines about time in all of cinema was uttered and, belongs to Orson Welles in The Third Man, yeah. where he gets to say something quite dismissive about the Swiss. <laughs> <laughs> uh, some of those iconic moments uh, of the... clock. I mean, Harold Lloyd must be in there somewhere. Yes. I'm not sure what time of day it is he's dangling from that clock face. Well, they did see Robert, safety last.
0: Robert Powell in the 1970s remake of The 39 Steps crawling along the face of Big Ben at one uh, point. There's also a cool one near 4 o'clock in the afternoon that you may have seen, Sal, where there's... Cause I, Saw some of it another time uh, Where uh, they talk about 13 minutes to 4 o'clock All the demons yes. and stuff are going to come out And then yep. at 4 o'clock You're back to the same guy screaming yep. They're coming, they're here Does anyone know how long it took him <laughs> to
1: get this entire piece together?
0: Oh um, How I f- many... I feel like it was
2: three years. I know it was for
0: White Cube Gallery, but yeah, forty
2: seasons, I reckon there.
1: I'm impressed. It was three. I expected longer. Yeah, I I
0: think he had a fairly robust team of editors working on it. There's a few credits there. Uh, So. Run, don't walk to uh, check out the clock, uh, which screens at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image until March tenth. It's free. Um, it's open ten till five on weekdays, except for Thursdays when it is open for twenty four
2: hours. And the Friday of the Labor Day weekend, it's going twenty four hours as well. Amazing.
0: You've been listening to Plato's Cave on Triple R with Cerise Howard, Sally Christie, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. Uh, on tonight's show, we discussed If Beale Street Could Talk and At Eternity's Gate, which are all screening at good independent cinemas around Melbourne. And we also discussed The Clock, which is currently screening exclusively at Acme until March 10th. And just a little correction on something we said before regarding The Clock. The extra 24-hour day is on the Saturday of the Labor Day weekend, not the Monday. Um, just letting you know, uh, you can subscribe to the Plato's Cave podcast via iTunes or wherever you else, wherever else you'd find your favourite podcasts. On next week's show, The Cave, we'll be digging into a bit of uh, glam rock with Natalie Portman and Vox Lux, uh, Steve Coogan and John C. Riley as Stan and Ollie, and the new Steven Soderbergh film, the heist-like sports agent drama... High Flying Bird. A huge thank you to Faith Everard for editing the Plato's Cave podcast and to Carl Chapman for panelling the show. This has been a podcast from Free Triple
2: R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.